Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. What does exploring the meaning of whiteness mean to me? Well, it means engaging with the legacy of inequalities forged out of a belief in white racial supremacy, which historically justified empire and slavery. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elliot, Dr. Adam even, Elliot Cooper, a researcher in applied sociology at the University of Greenwich, whose research focuses on policing and anti-racism, and who's an organizer with Black Lives Matter UK. His latest book, Black Resistance to British Policing, is due to be published in May this year. That's 2021 for those like me struggling to know the date or time at the moment. Welcome, Dr. Adam Elliot Cooper. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing at this present time? Uh, yeah, I'm not doing too bad considering the terrible circumstances the world is in. Yes, exactly. Surviving, surviving the apocalypse, as I as I tend to see it. Um, I see you have been busy though during uh, this lockdown. Lockdown, and you've been teaching, I think, a course at the Brooklyn Institute uh, from anti-colonialism to abolition. If, if I'm if yeah, I'm right. that's right. So um, earlier in the um, uh, last year, I taught a course called Bobbies in Babylon, which is about the history of British policing, both in Britain's colonies and on the British mainland. And in March of 2021, I'll be teaching a course called Yeah, from abolition, sorry, from anti-colonialism to abolition: a history of Black British radical politics. Uh, so if anyone's interested in that, there's still a few places left to sign up for that online course. Fantastic. Thank you. And um, I see you've also just co-authored a new book, right? Empire's Endgame, Racism and the British State. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's just come out, hasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, the um, the launch is actually this evening. Um, oh, fantastic. And- and it's, it's a basically a, a, a collaborative book project. So me and seven friends from who work at different universities and different departments um, came together to think about the multiple crises that are facing Britain at the moment. There's economic crisis and austerity. There's an ecological crisis with the looming uh, threat of climate change and pollution. We've got um, a social care crisis and a healthcare crisis, which has obviously become more illuminated since uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. But because and there's a crisis of kind of political identity, political um, and national identity in Britain as well, where Britain's trying to decide what it is and who it is um, in a world in which it's uh, declining in global influence, but still likes to think that it's a plucky imperial nation. And so mm. despite the fact that Britain is, is struggling to uh, reconcile these multiple crises that it's facing, it's actually conjuring up new crises as well. And that cr- the crisis that we're interested in that's been kind of uh, conjured up by Britain is, the, is a racial crisis. Um, and it's the idea that there are all of these um, uh, racial others, racial threats, whether it be the gangster or uh, the terrorist or the grooming gang or uh, the immigrants, all of these different uh, racial threats, which Britain is considering to be the real crisis that it it faces. So instead of dealing with the ecological, the social care, the health, the economic, the political, it's dealing with this apparent racial crisis instead, displacing the other crises, and of course, reproducing a whole heap of different forms of racial violence and inequality. Mm, the the historical bogeyman, right, reoccurring throughout different periods and different forms. I mean, that leads me to one of my, you know, top questions, given the name of our podcast. I'd love to know how you see the relationship between whiteness and Britishness. What's what's the connection between those two terms, which might seem quite nebulous to a lot of people? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess um, this has probably been said before, but it bears repeating that Britain was founded in 1707 as a a country which already had colonies, right? So England already had colonies. It was starting to engage in the transatlantic slave trade. It had colonies in parts of um, uh, what was to become North America and parts of the African continent and elsewhere. And even Scotland, plucky little Scotland, had a few colonies in Nova Scotia and uh, parts of Virginia and an attempt to colonise Panama. 
Um, and so when the Act of the Union was signed in 1707, Britain already had colonies. It was already um, not, an, not a nation state, but an imperial state. And one of the ways in which Britain and many other European powers justified and um, helped to explain and understand and conceptualize, I guess, how it could differently exploit, differently control, differently impose violence upon the different peoples that it was colonizing, was through the idea of race, the invention of race. And I guess whiteness is really important because whiteness was how Britain came to understand itself um, and it came to came to um, identify as um, itself as being top of this racial hierarchy, this racial order that it, it and other European powers were developing through imperialism. And so mm. whiteness is really becomes really fundamental, not only to Britishness and British identity, but also importantly to British nationalism as well. So when we when Britain talks about patriotism and nationalism um, and national identity, we know that race is being articulated here, and we know that Britishness and whiteness are often synonymous, um, and that Britishness, when people talk about Britishness, what they really mean is whiteness. And that's that's something I'm kind of keen to unpick because you might think, well, hold on, if, you know, in its founding form, we're talking about an empire which was multicultural in which actually, uh, proportionally speaking, um, white Europeans were a minority, in fact, um, if we're going to talk about Britishness in its earliest form. Um, why do we then today in 21 have a public perception of Britishness being so deeply connected to whiteness. Historically, that hierarchy we know was founded in the, the, the sort of justification for empire you've talked about, but why are we still there today? So I think one of the reasons that race um, was invented in the way that it was in this hierarchical way was so, as I mentioned, so that countries like Britain could exploit and control and impose violence upon people differently. But today, to, um, in the, the in 2021, we still see race playing a really fundamental role in the way people are exploited and controlled and having violence imposed upon them differently. Whether it be globally, when we look at the working conditions of people on the African continent or the Indian subcontinent or in Latin America, it would be very different to to people in nations racialized as white in Australia and uh, Western Europe and North America, or when we look at the working, the racialized labor that we see um, here on the British mainland, where we see black people being disproportionately more likely to work in precarious jobs, such as security guards or as in, in domestic services or as care workers. Um, and so we can see the ways in which race plays this rate, these racial hierarchies play this really fundamental role in uh, in reproducing, reproducing cap both global capitalism effectively by right? extracting profits, extracting resources, but, of, but also maintaining forms of disciplinary violence in order to maintain that racial order, that racial capitalism as well mm. that we see for our border systems, for our police um, uh, institutions and of course for our prison systems. And, and our military. Mm, uh, and, and I want to definitely come back to that question of capitalism and racism, because it has come up throughout the podcast is, you know, this this very, I think, legitimate question of, you know, can you have an, an anti-racist or non-racist capitalist system? But we will save that um, if you if, if I may. Um, you have a chapter in a recently released book called I Refuse to Condemn, um, called The Four Stages of Moral Panic. And there's a line there that I'd just love to quote um, uh, for us to maybe have a, a discussion about. So you say, news items exploring questions relating to racism, which have very little tangible effect on people's lives, perhaps only distantly connected to the realities of racism, brackets affecting housing, employment, immigration status, criminal justice or health, can create the impression that anti-racism is a somewhat petty culture war. Specifically, they create the impression that racism is more concerned with ever-shifting perceptions and feelings than it is with the material reality of people's lives with politics. And I wanted to pick you up on that because we are in the UK right now in the midst of one of these perhaps culture wars, um, specifically around universities and notions of free speech. 
Um, so I just wanted to ask you to develop maybe a little bit more on that. Why is there such a focus on what I guess you call the the, the questions of racism with little tangible effects rather than on the substantive ones? So I think there's two things happening here. Um, I think on the one hand, we have um, this idea, this, I think from the right as well, but also um, parts of the Liberal Centre, um, people who feel much more comfortable uh, asking us if we're using the politically correct language um, or whether um, the wherever there's the right uh, kind of representation within our institutions, rather than asking us instead, what do these institutions do and what does this language convey? And so rather than identifying racism, which I guess is, is something which is fundamentally linked to state power and capitalism, right, so uh, kind of some tangible power um, and the exploitation of people and resources and the environment. Instead, it's, it's racism is, is made to be something quite abstract, something quite superficial. Um, but I think there's something else as well that's really important, which is the way in which, particularly in the last kind of 20 years, we've seen a uh, proliferation of anti-racist initiatives or purportedly anti-racist initiatives, which treat racism as um, what we might, some people might call it unconscious bias, um, or uh, something which is uh, uh, some, some, a, a disease almost um, uh, uh, deep in the, the unconscious minds of, of people, which needs to be uh, identified through some kind of unconscious bias training or some kind of other educational slash therapeutic intervention. And once that disease has been removed from uh, the consciousness or unconsciousness of the individual or individuals in question, then they can go about their lives being anti-racist or at the very best, less racist. And this is one of the ways in which institutional racism, uh, when the normal functioning of an institution produces racist outcomes, is seen to be um, uh, dealt with or eradicated. And I think the problem with that is that to put it to, in short, mm. it's, tr it's, it's acting as if the tail wags the dog. Right. The, reason, the reason that people may or may not have conscious or unconscious biases um, uh, against other people isn't what leads to institutional racism. The, way, the, the, the fact that institutions rely on racism in order to reproduce their power, the fact that institutions like the police or the prison system or multinational corporations that need to turn a, a profit rely on racism in order to reproduce their power is what leads to people having these unconscious biases or these conscious biases. And so, I, yeah, and so I think that, so I think it's, it's, it's both of those things that's really important. Mm, um, and you mentioned the police. And I know a lot of your work has focused on policing. Can you um, maybe elaborate on how the police relies on racism to reproduce itself? Because it might not be necessarily clear for uh, certainly not for me. It's not automatically clear how it does that. Yes, yeah, good question. Um, so historically, of course, uh, Britain had the largest empire in human history um, and controlling so many people across Africa, Australia, across the uh, Indian subcontinent, the Middle East, the Caribbean and elsewhere required a, a, a system of policing. Um, and in order to justify the kind of violence that was needed um, uh, to control such massive populations being hugely exploited um, in many different ways across these different colonies required a very violent system of policing. And it was race and racism which, in, which helped to justify why it is that Britain would use such brutal tactics of discipline and control and violence um, towards its colonial subjects um, uh, in comparison to the kind of uh, disciplining that would be used against people racialised as white on the British, British mainland. And so today, in, 20, in 20th and 21st century Britain, we see the legacies of that. We mm. see the ideas that uh, black people or Asian people and other racialized others are um, essentially or more likely to be or somehow culturally uh, uh, deviant um, or criminal um, or violent, whether it be through ideas such as the mugger or the gangster or the terrorist or uh, the grooming gang or the illegal immigrants who's going to steal your jobs and, and all of these things or the, 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 these, these, the ideas that these immigrants are sexual predators. All of these types of ideas um, mean that poli policing um, racialized others 
frames them as being frames these these uh, racialized minorities as being uh, somehow uh, predisposed to these kinds of uh, deviant and criminal activities, which is why it is that Britain incarcerates black people at the same rates that the United States incarcerates African Americans, and our prison system is currently about twenty five percent black Asian or other racialized minorities, despite the fact they only constitute about thirteen percent of the population. Mm. Um, and, and there has, um, I want to take you back a little bit this summer, there's a, obviously been a, a huge movement this summer, uh, which I think has sought to raise awareness around some of these issues. Um, obviously, Black Lives Matter movement um, following the death of George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd in America, um, saw big protests um, across the UK. Um, led by the UK version of, of Black Lives Matter, but I think other other groups, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, were also uh, involved in galvanising people. And we saw hundreds of thousands of people, you know, taking to the streets across the country. I mean, how how did you interpret the protests that occurred this summer in the UK? What 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 are your thoughts on um, that that kind of outpouring of public support? for the Black Lives Matter movement, which cut, I think, across society in many ways. I think there are probably three or four reasons why the summer of 2020 saw the largest anti-racist mobilisations in in modern British history. I think one of them, of course, is linked to the rise of uh, popular nationalism, uh, as we mentioned earlier, very much linked to racism and whiteness, of course, uh, which uh, is probably best, um, which saw victories in the Brexit uh, referendum result, and of course, with Boris Johnson's government and its three-word manifesto, "Get Brexit Done." I think the other thing that le- it led that led to it was the um, the handling of the pandemic um, and the way the manner mm. in which it illuminated a whole swathe of inequalities that exist within our society, faced by disabled people or elderly people, faced by um, young people and working-class people who don't have access to um, green spaces and and gardens. Um, the inequalities that are faced by um, racialized minorities in our healthcare systems and our social care systems. All of these kinds of inequalities were, were illuminated by the pandemic, which I think also contributed um, uh, to people participating in the protests. But also I think there's other, something else which was less immediate and more kind of, uh, a, a, more of a slow burner. I mean, in, in, over the past 20 or 30 years in Britain, the prison population has almost doubled. Uh, uh, the police have far more powers and far more weaponry and far, far more uh, capability to monitor and surveil people than they've ever had. Um, and they're therefore imposing themselves on people's lives, not simply through stops and searches and arrests and, and, and incarcerations, but also through um, their ability to use the prevent program or anti-gangs initiatives or the hostile environment um, uh, powers to monitor people through their access to healthcare. Uh, monitor children in schools, uh, have access to people um, attempting to access housing or other kinds of service provision. All of these types of things have led to a very kind of racist, nakedly racist policing imposing itself in a myriad of sections of of public and social life in Britain. And so I think it's a combination of these three things that led to the anger and outrage, which was obviously sparked by the brutal public lynching of, of George Floyd in the United States. Mm. And and I mean, since then, of course, we Black Lives Matter has continued to operate here in the UK. I, I read recently, and you can correct me, uh, that you were one of three individuals to register Black Lives Matter UK as a community benefit society in September last year under the name Black Liberation Movement UK. Um, how did that decision come about? Why did you decide to create a community benefit society out of the movement? So uh, Black Lives Matter UK has been uh, uh, in operation since 2016, so um, almost five years. Um, And before that, um, many of the people involved were involved in a range of different kind of anti-racist and other activist uh, campaigns and groups. And I think that one of the reasons that the group Black Lives Matter UK went from being a kind of loose network of activists and organisers running projects and campaigns in their own local communities and had and decided to become a more kind of formalised organisation was because there was a, a very large, um, sizable um, uh, 
set of donations made by the general public uh, towards Black Lives Matter UK. And Black Lives Matter didn't really have the infrastructure to deal with that kind of money. I think it was about £1.2 million, a huge amount of money. Yes, um, I and, read that, yeah. And so the group had never really received any significant amounts of money before. Everyone had always, had always been volunteers and had kind of used their own time and resources to uh, help run the kind of campaigns and projects that it engaged in. And so it, it was an enormous responsibility that required lawyers and accountants and uh, administrators. And we realised that in order to get a bank account approved, there would need to be... Um, uh, there would need to we'd, uh, the group would have to register as a, a as an organisation, and that would have to be approved by some body or other. And so the slow process began of uh, wading through all of this bureaucracy and admin and legal documentation and finance um, uh, in and amongst people's full time jobs and caring responsibilities and stress mm. of lockdown and everything else. And and that's why the decision was made to eventually uh, register as a, as a community benefit society. Um, Unfortunately, the name uh, Black Lives Matter had already been taken um, uh, by uh, some other, um, uh, I will probably say, a cynical person because um, oh, we looked right. up because we, we looked them up and they also had bought Brexit Britain and a number of other names as well. Uh, so oh, it was clearly right. made for, in the hope that we would buy it off them for a significant amount of money, which we weren't prepared to do. Sure. Um, and so we went for Black Liberation UK instead, which has the same, obviously. Uh, is the same acronym BLM UK um, yeah. and still uh, uh, I guess conveys the kind of politics that the group is committed to. And are, are, I mean is it affiliated to the US movement or not because I read that on the BLM US website that they are, have got a kind of UK contingency so is this that or is it separate to that? Um, so we're not an official chapter of BLM US, but we do we are we are we do work in partnership with them, um, and we are in constant contact with them. Uh, but we're not an official chapter, so we work completely autonomously. Uh, but we are in con- we are in regular contact with uh, the groups in the US. Okay, and um, so I was just reading on the, their website. They say Black Lives Matter is a global organization in the US, UK, and Canada whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. How similar would you say the key objectives of the US and UK movements are? And I mean, I know you've said what the relationship is. You work you work sometimes together, but but you're sort of not under the official umbrella. Is that right? Uh, we're not we're not an official chapter. Um, we're completely autonomous. But of course, we share a lot of the same politics as BLM uh, in the United States, which is, of course, one one of the reasons that we uh, share a name. Uh, but we have a uh, our own our own political platform, of course, which is uh, suited for our specific uh, purpose in Britain. If people want to check it out, um, they can read it on uh, ukblm.org, and that that um, covers a range of different issues, from policing and borders to education and healthcare. So thinking about the environment um, and militarism and foreign policy, a whole range of different uh, issues which I think are uh, affecting the lives of black people in Britain and, and beyond. And, and can I just check, so I know that this week the UK Electoral Commission rejected a bid for Black Lives Matter political party on the grounds that it was likely to mislead voters is that you guys also or is this a separate group applying a, for? That's a separate group of people. We're and right. a, as far as I'm aware, no one in Black Lives Matter UK is, uh, has attempted to run uh, for office in Parliament. But there are, as I mentioned, there are many, many Black Lives Matter UK chapters all over the country, um, which are completely autonomous. And Black Lives Matter means something different, means very different things to many different people. Um, and for some people, it might mean uh, parliamentary politics, and for other people, it might not. Right. And, and that brings me nicely. I mean, I really want to explore the, the relationship, conceptually speaking, uh, between whiteness and BLM. Um, I don't know if you're able to break that down for us. What, how do you uh, conceive of that, the connection, but the, um, the ways in which is BLM a, a response to whiteness? How, how do you conceive of it in relation to whiteness? OK, that's an interesting question. Um, so I guess because whiteness is a fundamental part of racial hierarchy and one of BLM's aims is to dismantle racial hierarchy, it's important for us to understand that whiteness is um, 
also therefore needs to be dismantled. It needs to be one of the primary uh, targets of our attempts at, at dismantling it. And I think one of the other things that's really important about whiteness in relation to BLM is the fact that white people can be um, uh, what, what are often called race traitors, right? Uh, treacherous to the uh, the the racial category which has been projected onto their bodies, which has been imposed upon them through acts of solidarity. And I think we've seen those acts of solidarity um, in in show their kind of show their effect in the summer of 2020 where mm. large numbers of people not just in multicultural cities like london and liverpool and manchester and bristol and birmingham and, um, came and organized protests but in very white towns and villages across the country as well we saw mm. these kinds of black lives matter mobilizations and support um, for the movement and so i think I think negating and challenging the, the 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 not only the hierarchy of racism, but the racialized divisions, I guess, that exist within our society that treats racism as being a black problem that black people need to deal with, um, is also something which I think has arisen um, through the protest movements that we saw um, in the summer of last year and, and continue um, uh, today. Mm. And and so on that note, um, I and I I kind of want to ask you about this because. Um, the history of BLM UK, I think, will be, um, or at least it's it, the birth of the movement and and the founders and and kind of the the actions that have been taken during this period will be part a big chapter in British history. And yet, I'm not sure that we're seeing kind of a mainstream recognition of just how significant this truly is. Um, and since, to me, a part of whiteness seems to be um, um, kind of ignoring significant parts of British history. Um, I'm wondering if you would be happy to tell us a bit about kind of what organisation UK BLM grew out of. I mean, I, I asked that because I think there's often a narrative that it's kind of, you know, oh, people were inspired by what was happening in the US. And I'm sure that was part of it. But did UK BLM grow out of existing indigenous black British organizations, which, you know, predated events in America? I read it grew out of the now disbanded activist group called the London Black Revolutionaries or the Black Revs. Is that correct? Um, well, I was never a member of London Black Revolutionaries, um, but I think other people who have been involved in Black Lives Matter organising may have been part of that group. Um, but I, I was a, I was personally a part of a number of different organisations, including the Tottenham Defence Campaign, um, which organised in Tottenham in North London to challenge uh, police harassment and violence following the uh, civil unrest of, of 2011. Um, and I'd worked with a number of different groups, mainly focusing on policing, including uh, the London Campaign Against Police and State Violence, which was founded by a black mother in South London after her son was badly beaten up by the police um, and used to take and we, the group still does take on cases of uh, police racism and violence um, in the London area and so there's, there are a number of different groups that I think people were a part of that um, that led to the organization being established but I think that what's more important or equally important um, and I think speaks to your question a little bit is the fact that we shouldn't be surprised that the British mainstream is um, playing uh, playing down the influence of uh, the politics, uh, particularly in the more radical uh, currents of, the, of those politics that emerged out of the protests in the summer of 2020 or uh, the years that Black Lives Matter UK um, has been around. Because if we look historically at Britain um, and its black power movements of the 1960s and 70s, whether it be um, uh, the Black Unity and Freedom Party or the Black uh, the British Black Panther movements um, or the United Coloured Peoples Association or um, later groups like the Brixton Black Women's Group, the Hackney Black Women's Group um, or the uh, uh, defence campaigns of the 1980s like the to Toxteth defence campaign in Liverpool or the Hansworth defence campaign in Birmingham or the uh, Brixton uh, defence campaign in, in South London. All of these different uh, Black community organisations were either played down by the by the mainstream in with regard to their significance, or of course criminalised and demonised by both the government and much of the mainstream press as well as being uh, deviants, um, as being uh, having criminal elements, as being um, uh, as 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 being fundamentally um, against the interests of the British people. 
and I think that I think that therefore we see a, a kind of a, a, re- a reproduction of that kind of pattern in, uh, in Britain today. Yeah, and it, and it seems yet so important to understand the roots of BLM UK because otherwise it's so easy to kind of dismiss it, I think, as many have in the mainstream as some kind of, you know, flash in the pan, people frustrated, it's summer, you know, George Floyd's murder was obviously a very shocking um, thing to witness for a lot of people. Um, and yet, actually, I think the, the more accurate narrative that I'm hearing from you is that actually there were been indigenous black British movements working for a very long time in the UK but their efforts haven't really been recognized in in the same way or at least to the same extent um and that does BLM in that sense BLM UK in this sense offer uh, a kind of umbrella of unity for these for these different organizations or um do you see it differently um so I think there's two things here I think the first thing is that um I think historically in Britain, black British, black power movements, I don't know if it would ne- I would necessarily describe them as indigenous because they were always connected to patterns of migration. Um, mm. For instance, the people involved in the Black Panther movements in Britain in the 1960s and 70s, they, many of them were migrants from Trinidad who had been involved in the Black Power movements and anti-colonial movements in Trinidad um, in previous years. Many others were uh, from Guyana involved in socialist movements in Guyana. They were connected to uh, anti-colonial um, movements in uh, groups like the West Indian so the um, West African Students' Union um, in, in central London in, in the 1930s and 40s, many of those people hailed from uh, Sierra Leone and Ghana and Nigeria. There were, there were these always these, because, of course, Britain is a centre of empire, its black, its black power movements have also been um, movements which have spanned across the um, Britain's colonies and its, its imperial expanse. They've never uh, been focused solely here on the British mainland. And that sense of internationalism, I think, is something that um, I, I share as well um, in my own politics. And I think mm. that it's important for us to um, ensure that we uh, don't attempt to uh, recreate the real and dehistoricize uh, black politics in Britain. And because there is such a rich history of black thought and black politics um, uh, that has existed in Britain, which is interconnected um, with influences both from uh, the United States, but also the Caribbean and the African continents as well, that I think we can can build and learn from their mistakes, but also um, uh, develop their victories and their as well, um, if mm. we uh, if we understand and, and and look closely at those histories. And so now I gather BLM UK has raised um, 1.2 million pounds um, since the summer. How have you, as a group, determined the priorities in the spending? I saw the first grants going to the United Families and Friends campaign to set up a people's tribunal for deaths in state custody, so that could be in prison or detention centres or during arrest, presumably. Um, why, I guess, why was this uh, particular issue uh, the first one that you wanted to um, uh, dedicate the grant to? Um, and what are the kind of priorities for BLM UK in terms of supporting uh, black organisations here in the UK? So I would say that um, UFFC was mentioned on the GoFundMe page um, as one of the groups that we've been working with uh, um, since 2016 and one one of the groups that we uh, expect to continue to work with for people who are unfamiliar with it. Uh, The United Family and Friends campaign was founded by um, a group of black women um, uh, about just over 20 years ago um, who had lost loved ones in the hands of the police. And they have been marching um, uh, every year uh, to to challenge police um, uh, brutality and violence and racism, but also have been running legal campaigns and other projects as well in order to challenge these kinds of issues. And so because we named them specifically on the GoFundMe, we thought it was only right to um, ensure that they they were the first uh, announcement um, and and a priority. Um, But also, of course, because the work they're doing is so important and so urgent. And I think that if we're going to challenge police violence, then the people most directly affected by it should be those that need it. Mm. Um, And and just out of interest, so obviously I know Black Lives Matter, the term black has meant many different things to different people at different times. Um, and And I suspect actually the word black in Black Lives Matter US may mean something different to what it means 
to Black Lives Matter UK. So what does the word black mean in Black Lives Matter UK? Well, black means lots of different things to lots of different people, um, as you mentioned. Um, so uh, some, for some people, it means a political blackness, uh, which emerges out of the uh, thinking of Walter Rodney, um, a Guyanese um, activist and scholar who wrote a very famous book called uh, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, but talked about political blackness in his book, uh, Groundings with My Brothers, but also comes out of the work of the black consciousness consciousness movement in South Africa and emerges from the thinking of people like Steve Biko um, in I Write What I Like. And, and it's through, through these, of course, these British colonies and former British colonies um, that these ideas began to gain influence um, here um, on the British mainland. And we should be unsurprised that they emerged from Guyana and South Africa, two countries where there is a large population of both African and South Asian people, that this idea of political blackness um, became popularised. And almost every uh, black power organisation in 1960s and 70s and 80s Britain was so quote unquote politically black. However, Black Lives Matter UK um, is not a politically black organisation. Um, everyone in the group is um, of African heritage. Um, but I think that it's important for us to recognise the ways in which different forms of racism are interconnected and building links of solidarity with all oppressed groups is fundamental if we're going to uh, gain the kinds of uh, changes and freedoms and forms of liberation that we so desperately need. But does that mean that the focus of the, uh, for example, the spending for Black Lives Matter UK will be on African and Caribbean organisations and less so for what we might call politically black um, organisations, which might be, you know, Asian run or um, other ethnic minority groups? Or, or are you taking a different um, kind of definition? Which, I guess, what's the focus of from from the definition of what we mean by black in that title flows who gets the support of the group or is that wrong to assume that um so in terms of the funding um i think that that it's very difficult to say um that there are purely um black black organizations in britain let me i'll give you a couple of examples so um there is an organisation called African Rainbow Family, um, an African-run LGBTQ um, organisation which supports undocumented people. Um, if an Afghan um, or a Syrian turns up at their door, are they going to turn them away and say, oh, no, we're only for black people? No, of course they're not. And so despite the fact that they're a black-run organisation, they still have a sense of humanity and solidarity. And so Black Lives Matter UK will be funding African Rainbow Family, which supports undocumented people in the Greater Manchester area, knowing, knowing and being fully supportive of the fact that they don't simply service black people in some kind of narrow nationalist agenda. Uh, similarly, um, uh, the United Family and Friends campaign, which was founded by black women people uh, who had lost loved ones at the hands of the state, um, won't tell a, a family who isn't black, who's also had a loved one killed by the police or our border system or in our prison system, that no, they can't join their campaign because um, for some reason they, that they need to do something separately. Um, um, and so, or the Northern Police Monitoring Project, um, which runs uh, 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 police monitoring and um, other defence projects across the north of England, um, will be running some youth projects um, but they won't be going to youth clubs where where all of the young people have to be black um, and they're all checked at the door before they're allowed to run any workshops or uh, engage in any kinds of initiatives. And um, because if we, anyone who's involved in organising, anyone who's involved in any kind of practical politics knows that that just isn't how British society is formulated. Um, and that's not how wor our work is practically done. And so it would be, even if it were possible to only support only to only end police brutality against black people, even if it were possible to only end um, health inequalities faced by black people, but not other racialized minorities. What kind of vision is that anyway? What kind of vision is that for the world? Mm. Where, where, where we're like, okay, yeah, we only want to stop black people dying at our borders and drowning in the Mediterranean. Everyone, everyone else can continue to drown and suffer and die. Oh, it's only black people that, that are disproportionately uh, dying of COVID. Only that section is a problem. If other pe if Bangladeshi people are also disproportionately dying of COVID, pff, so what? They can sort that out themselves. What kind of politics is that? Mm. So, it, so not not only is having this very kind of narrow politics practically impossible. 
I think it's born out of a very problematic nationalist politics as well, um, mm. even if it were possible. No, that's that's a really interesting point. And I think it's also um, interesting to raise the question of, well, I mean, that's kind of politically black. Uh, when we talk about political blackness in the UK, it sounds like even if you're trying to um, take a more narrow focus in your definition, you would, from what you're saying, you know, in, in concretely, that just isn't the makeup of the UK society. Um, but if we expand... Um, from a national context to an international context, um, does um, the movement have a national uh, focus and how does it see itself in relation to other international uh, struggles or struggles in other national contexts? And I'm thinking here, of course, of the, you know, NSARS in, in Nigeria and the recent violence in Uganda. But I'm also thinking about, you know, Angela Davies and the support for the Palestinian struggle for liberation. And how does Black Lives Matter UK see its identity in relation to other international movements um, against r racism or um, oppression, colonial oppression or, or whatever other forms, I guess, of, of oppression? Uh, Black Lives Matter UK stands against all forms of oppression um, and uh, of course stands in solidarity with Palestinian liberation um, as well as the other movements of uh, movements and struggles that exist across the global south. Okay, and so in terms of the focus of the uh, organisation's actions, is it something that we can expect to see from BLM UK in the future, that um, it will be about sort of connecting the UK movement to the international one, or is there a sense that the priorities need to be much more domestic for the time being, maybe? Uh, I, I, I'm not privy to say what kind of actions Black Lives Matter will be uh, okay. doing uh, going forward. No problem. Um, I wanted to um, take a step back to the conversation around the summer and the kind of big uh, support that we saw, at least um, in terms of the, the streets. And of course, we saw the funding as well. Um, and one of the uh, I remember having a conversation with um, one of the organisers um, of the movement at that time around who could join BLM UK. Can anyone join BLM UK? And how do you see the organisations um, kind of membership structure because obviously there'll be a lot of people of different backgrounds identities looking to support presumably what form do you uh does the movement want that support to come from from different groups and I say this in full knowledge that you know as a Muslim myself I would much rather the priorities in terms of combating Islamophobia were determined by people actually experiencing Islamophobia firsthand uh, but that once those priorities have been defined, uh, you know, that I would very much hope that we would get support from, um, uh, you know, the, well, the whole of society in theory, but um, a much wider segment than, than our community. So how do you, how does, how does BLM UK conceptualise the kind of membership and, and support and, and investment of different groups within it? Uh, so uh, I can't really say at the moment, we don't know um, what membership of this particular group looks like, will, will look like. Um, as I did mention before, we are a black organisation, an uh, African heritage organisation. But as I also mentioned before, we work in solidarity with lots of other groups um, across the country. Um, some of the other chats of Black Lives Matter might be, as we saw, trying to run for parliament. Other Black Lives Matter chapters in the country might be more multi-ethnic. Um, we know that there are Black Lives Matter chapters in the UK that do have uh, other ethnic groups um, uh, within within them. Um, and that doesn't mean that we wouldn't support those, um, the campaigns that they might be running or be involved with. Um, Black Lives Matter means lots of different things to lots of different people. Um, but for us personally, um, we, yeah, we are an African heritage organisation. And, uh, and so therefore, we will work with other groups in solidarity. Um, so um, in reference to kind of a very specific question that came up over the summer. So if um, a kind of a white activist has said, came along and said, guys, I want to open a, uh, a local chapter of BLM, um, you know, in my small village um, here in, in rural England, um, that would not be desirable, presumably. Um, um, what action would that person be better off undertaking um, in, in order to best support BLM UK? 
Um, I'm, I'm not here to tell anyone what kind of political action they should be taking. Um, I, you know, there's no blueprint to political struggle. Um, it's really great if uh, people want to build links of solidarity, um, but we don't, we, we don't own, and we haven't tried to attempt to own um, the name Black Lives Matter um, and control the way in which it's been used. Um, but do you, do you feel that it would best? I mean, I understand you don't want to tell people how to run their politics, but I guess the question is for people who want to support Black Lives Matter, but who are not of African heritage, what's the best way to do that? I mean, there's there's no there's no blueprint. There are a million things people can do. Um, they, you know, they could they could volunteer at their local community organisation. They could help to organise protests. They can, there's there's um, there are lots of things they can do. There are there are anti-racist organisations and groups in in cities up and down the country. Um, and uh, and and we've and I think I guess we've kind of seen what people have been doing, right? Um, for instance, when Mohamed um, uh, um, Hassan was killed um, by the police in in Cardiff in January, um, a multi-ethnic mobilisation arose out of Cardiff, which organised protests, but also helped to run uh, awareness raising and social media campaigns, and organised public events, and um, uh, challenged uh, the local uh, police and governments, and did a whole range of different things. Um, and I think it's about um, understanding that uh, solidarity can take a, a whole myriad of different forms. There, there isn't, as far as I'm concerned anyway, uh, a checklist of things that non-Black people can do um, in, in that really quite pres prescriptive way. Unfortunately, um, as far as I'm concerned, society and, and anti-racism is, is often a lot messier and, and complicated and unpredictable. Um, so to, to, to put a substantive uh, kind of uh, blueprint on, on what people should should be doing. Mm. And I, I listened to your interview that you gave during the BLM protest uh, during the summer and, and uh, you said something, you said we, we need to build something from these protests and make sure this radical energy isn't lost. And I'm just wondering, looking at it now, um, do you think that has been achieved and what are your hopes for the movement going forward? So um, the first black person to be killed by the police um, was in the first week of January. And following that, the family of the person who was killed knew exactly what to do. Right? They reached out to their local Black Lives Matter organisation. There were protests organised, as I mentioned, a whole, a whole swathe of different actions. Um, and I think that, and in fact, as we speak, there are protests in Newport in Wales as another black person has been killed by the police in his own bedroom. And I think that the way in, the way, the way in which um, these killings have been re reacted to by the communities and by, um, by uh, protesters and by wider activist networks demonstrates, I think, the longevity um, of uh, the protests of this summer, that people haven't lost that energy haven't lost their drive for change for challenging um policing in britain and beyond and i th and i hope that while these these police killings are mortifying and always shocking if not uh, if if not unfortunately given our context unsurprising that this resistance continues in the way that we've seen it um have to do so already um mm. in the first uh five or six weeks of, of 2021. Mm. Um, and I think at the time you're talking about the, the defund the police campaign, um, which drew you uh, the ire of many a daytime TV pundit, um, including Piers Morgan, I think. Um, so for, for people who might not be familiar with the defund the police uh, campaign, what, what is defunding the police about? We People might say, well, we're always hearing about how the police are underfunded. You know, read last year that the police are now facing a new era of austerity. Um, so so where does defund the police fit into this picture? So um, I guess it's probably worth beginning by saying the fact that uh, pointing out the fact that uh, our police and prison and border system is continually expanding at a far greater rates than our healthcare systems or education uh, uh, provisions or our youth services or mental health or anything else like that. Um, the police, there are far more police officers on our streets than there were 20 or 40 years ago. 
have far more powers to monitor our digital communications or um, have access to um, our, um, our ability to access housing or education or healthcare and those types of things. Um, but they also have far more um, military power as well. They're more likely to be um, armed with firearms or have tasers or the use of spit hoods and, or uh, armoured vehicles and uh, riot uh, equipment and all of, this, all of these different types of uh, militarised provision. And as I mentioned before, we, our prison population in Britain has almost doubled in the last uh, 20 years. Um, and this isn't because Britain has become twice as immoral over the last 20 or 30 years. When we look at our prison population, what we see are people who are more likely to have a history of mental health problems or addiction problems or homelessness or joblessness or school exclusion or have experienced domestic violence or child abuse. Um, a whole range of different social issues. But rather than these social issues being dealt with with social solutions, mental health care, youth services, domestic violence services, uh, free education, decent council housing, all of these different types of things, we instead see a criminal justice response to these social problems. And so what defunding the police argues is that the police have failed in what even they say they're going to do. They haven't made our streets safer. In fact, they've often brought more violence into an already harmful context, an already harmful situation, because locking human beings um, in a cage called, that we call prison for those who have had these social issues of deprivation and harm and uh, poor health care only exacerbates those kinds of problems. And so what defunding the police argues is that we instead need to invest in our communities invest in the kind of social provision and care which will make people less likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system in the first place yeah. and it's through those kinds of investments which reduce society's reliance on our police and prison system and increase the capacity of our mental health provision of our youth services of our education sector, of our domestic violence and social services and social care system, of all of these other um, uh, sections of society, that we can rely less on this ever-expanding prison and police system, which reproduces not just racism, but state violence more generally, and empower people to create alternatives to that system of racism and violence. Do you see um, the way that our um, and I, I can kind of guess your answer, but is it symptomatic, in fact, of whiteness that, in fact, there is a kind of default criminalization of certain communities rather than, as you point out, the alternative of potentially offering forms of social support that could avoid um, the uh, those individuals entering that situation in the first place? I mean, is that um, in itself... Um, a symptom or a, an indication of structural whiteness that there is that response to uh, certain forms of behaviour rather than seeing people as um, victims in need of their own forms of support that seeing them as, as criminals that require punishment? I think that what our prison and police and border system does is develop the, reproduce the idea that there are dangers within society um, that need to be, that, that need to um, be locked away or kept, kept out of uh, the borders of Britain. And what I think, I think that probably does, serves a number of functions. One of the things, of course, it does is, is it serves a disciplinary function. It helps discipline people. Um, so people be, might be less likely to um, uh, go uh, use uh, forms of employment which are criminalised, like sex work or uh, drug distribution or what have you, in order to make a living in a, in a context in which making ends meet is increasingly more difficult. It's considered to be a disciplinary force for uh, undocumented people um, to, who have to live in the shadows um, um, and, keep the, and, and put up with forms of exploitation which would, they wouldn't have to if they had documentation. It, became, it becomes a disciplinary force for young people um, who yeah. uh, are being uh, miseducated and failed by our education system, who are being um, exploited in their workplace and exploited by our housing crisis and, and all these other kinds of issues. So I think that's one of the things that it does. Yeah. 
And, and I think the other thing that does is what I, I kind of, I guess I started this podcast in saying, which is that it is, it is the manufacture of a crisis. Right. So Britain, Britain manufactures these crises, um, the crisis, of the, the racial crisis, the migrant crisis, because it is unable or unwilling to deal with the economic crisis that capitalism brings or the ecological and environmental crises that imperialism brings or the crisis of national identity um, mm. that has arisen since the decline um, of Britain as a colonial superpower. And so mm. I think it's this this mixture of different things which leads to the the rise of this uh, this prison state, um, which uh, which requires racism um, to reproduce its power and legitimacy. Um, thank you. And I mean, before we head over to the quick fire round, I did want to come back to the question of capitalism and racism because it does seem to be one that we get stuck on a lot in these conversations. Um, my understanding is that racism acts as a lubricant, an ideological lubricant for capitalism that that basically, if you want to think of it, is, is a kind of pyramid figure in which, um, you know, a small amount of people will benefit from a system which requires uh, a large majority to be um, to have a lot less in order to for the for the smaller top of the pyramid to have a lot more. Uh, to put it in very simple terms, um, how how do you think about the relationship between capitalism and racism, and can you have a uh, a form of non-racist capitalism? Can can we have equality within a capitalist system? So, I'll, 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 so I think that the, in, to answer your question, can we can we have uh, racial inequality in, in a capitalist system? The answer is we don't know because race because capitalism has never functioned and existed without racism. Mm. And uh, a guy called Cedric Robinson wrote this book called Black Marxism back in the 1980s, um, where he uh, traces the history of what he calls the black radical tradition. And what he describes isn't capitalism. What he describes is racial capitalism. And what he does is mm. he critiques Marxism, right? And he critiques Marxism by saying Marx says, Karl Marx says that capitalism makes us all more and more similar. We all become what Marx calls the proletariat, right? We're all, we all come together. We all start to work in similar kinds of factories, doing similar kinds of boring, um, meaningless work, being exploited in more and more similar ways. But Cedric Robinson says, no, that's not true. What capitalism seeks to do, actually, is to differentiate us to differentiate between different types of workers who need to be exploited differently, who need to be disciplined differently, and who mm. need to be controlled differently. And that's one of capitalism's powers. So it will enslave Africans in the Caribbean, it will indenture in people of Indian heritage in the Caribbean, and it will exterminate the indigenous people of the Caribbean. Right? So it, it, will, it will exploit, it will control and it will impose violence upon different racialized categories of people in different kinds of ways in order to serve its interests. And so therefore, yeah, we have to, therefore we, I think we have to understand that racism and capitalism are fundamentally linked with each other. And races, and not only does capitalism rely on racism in order to function in the way that it does, but also racism, of course, therefore, also relies on capitalism to become tangible, right? to become material. And this goes back to the question you had before right? about uh, racism is often misinterpreted as being um, a set of ideas um, mm. or a set of thought patterns or, um, uh, or, or a set of uh, patterns of language and discourse. Right? When in fact, what we should do is understand racism as being something that fundamentally becomes tangible, becomes material, to use a um, bit of a Marxian term, true capitalism uh, there's a, a, a very quickly sorry a great um, no, please. Yeah, the way the way that Stokely Carmichael used to explain it was if a white man wants to lynch me it's his problem but if a white man has the power to lynch me then it's my problem and it's mm -hmm. racism that makes the white man want to lynch me but it's capitalism that gives him the power to do it mm, interesting so in that sense I guess, would you conclude it that to be an anti-racist requires one to necessarily be an anti-capitalist? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, I feel like, you know, throughout the series, we've explored this a lot and it, it seems like we come back to this. And I guess the 
the real struggle is, you know, how, you know, as, as people who exist within the matrix, um, what does that look like? Um, do you have any recommendations for people who like to read up on uh, a little bit more about the the relationship between? I'm, I know I'm putting you on the spot. I didn't even I, he did not get a you know, heads up about this guy. So. <laughs> Um, no, no, it's no problem at all. Uh, yeah, I'd recommend yeah. reading uh, Black, Black Marxism by Cedric Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd recommend reading uh, the literature of Angela Davis, uh, particularly her work on anti on on, on racial capitalism, thing, uh, texts like uh, 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 Sex, Race and Class. Um, but also um, there are more recent uh, texts, uh, the work of um, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore in the United States. Um, on racial capitalism and prisons. Uh, her book, The Golden Gulag, is brilliant as well. Uh, so there, yeah, there, um, and in terms of Britain, I'd recommend people read um, an anthology recently published called Here to Stay, Here to Fight, a Race Today anthology, which is a um, anthology, obviously, of uh, articles from a Black Power magazine in Britain from the 1970s and 80s called Race Today, which also analyzes um, class and race and imperialism. Mm, fantastic. Thank you so much for those recommendations. Um, we're now on to our quick fire round. Um, if you're ready, here we go. What is your definition of whiteness? The uh, the unjust racial hierarchy, um, which, which what's the idea and concept which sits at the top of the unjust racial hierarchy. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is the universalist or is this universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? Of course, we have to work towards a world in which race does not exist. It may not ever exist in our lifetimes, but I think if we cannot imagine a world in which race does no longer exists, then what are we doing this work for? Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? And if so, why? I think that whiteness is useful for understanding anti-racism because so often it's considered to be invisible. Uh, Very often when we talk about racism, we talk about uh, blackness, we talk about racialized others. And I think it's useful to think about how racism, I think it's useful to conceptualize racism as power rather than simply a subjugation. And I think that whiteness um, provides us with the conceptual tools to do that. Brilliant, thank you so much for your time. Um, For people who want to hear more from you, uh, what's next? Where can people buy your book? Uh, What's your bookseller of preference? Um, uh, so the, the book is being published by Manchester University Press, so people can get it from that website, as well as uh, other commercial outlets, which um, uh, people I'm sure have already heard of and aware of. Um, and if people want to yeah, follow more of my work, um, they can follow me on Twitter at AdamEC87. Fantastic. Dr. Adam Elliott Cooper, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.